Welcome to episode number 60 of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and Reformation Roundtable is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. We are a Reformed and Evangelical church that planted on Pentecost of 2021. That's May 23rd of 2021. The following audio comes from our Lord's Day service that took place on Sunday, August 22nd, 2021. If you'd like to join us or if you'd like to know more about the Reformed Church here in Lewis County, you can go to lewiscounty.church. Lewiscounty.church, you can find out where we're meeting and the meeting times, as well as any other events that we might that might be taking place. So I hope you enjoy the service. I hope you enjoy listening into the sermon. And I hope you join us for our next Lord's Day worship. Our meditation in preparation for worship this morning comes from the book of Isaiah. Chapter 29, verses 13 and 14. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men, therefore behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of the wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we draw near to you this morning, we ask for deliverance from hypocrisy. Deliver us from drawing near with our mouth only, and not with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Please do a marvelous work this morning in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. Our call to worship comes this morning from Psalm 95, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. As we approach your holy throne, cause us to make a joyful noise unto you, for you are the rock of our salvation. Give us hearts that are full of thanksgiving as we come into your presence knowing that you are the great king above all gods. Cause us to see with eyes of faith that in your hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains, and with those same hands you made all the seas and dry lands. You truly are great, and we come boldly into your presence in the name of Jesus, who reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, and amen. Amen. On the front of your bulletin, you'll see the lectionary readings for this week. And in those lectionary readings, we come to a famous passage in Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. I call it famous because if you're married, you probably know it by heart. At least you probably know the portion that applies to your spouse. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now, immediately following this passage, there are also commands for children, for fathers, as well as slaves and masters. Children, obey and honor your parents. Fathers, don't provoke your children, but build them up in Christ. Slaves, obey and honor your earthly masters with sincerity and honesty. And masters, be good to your slaves and don't threaten them or show partiality. These commands are so easy to understand. So why are they so hard to follow? Why is it that out of 100 marriages, 90, why is it that out of 100 marriage problems, 99 could be resolved by a wife simply submitting to her husband as to the Lord, and a husband actually loving his wife as Christ loves the church? If it's so simple, why don't people just do it? The answer is twofold. The first is simply because we're sinful, and sin makes us stupid and self-destructive. But it's also more nuanced. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives each of us, men, women, children, fathers, employees, employers, he gives us these specific commands, knowing full well our sinful tendencies. These commands weren't assigned at random. They were applied with a surgeon's precision. Husbands need to be told to love our wives because our sinful flesh desires only to love ourselves. Wives need to be told to submit to their husbands because their sinful, nat- nat- their sinful flesh naturally desires to rule over her husband and not submit to him. Children need to be told to obey and honor their parents because their sinful flesh would rather do their own thing while thinking mom and dad are clueless. Fathers need to be exhorted to not provoke but train up their kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord because our sinful flesh would rather feel justified simply criticizing our children's failures. Employees would rather work hard only when the boss is watching, and the boss would rather threaten anyone he suspects isn't giving 100%. All of these Pauline commands strike at the very heart of our sinful tendencies to rebel against the hierarchies God has created. But it must be restated. These commands are so easy to understand. The question is not one of understanding. The question is simple. Will we obey the clear teaching of Scripture? Husbands, are you really loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Really? Wives, are you really submitting to your husbands in everything? Children, fathers, employees, employers, are you following these commands perfectly? Of course, we know the answer to this is a resounding no. We fail in countless ways to live up to the perfect standards of Scripture. And what is worse, we are called to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. But the good news is that Christ came that He might set everything perfect on our behalf before His Holy Father. Now the Father calls us to come and to confess our sins. Though they be scarlet, He will make us as white as snow. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So as you are able, will you kneel with me? Scripture says in Psalm 95, verses 6 through 8, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Having confessed our sin, listen to this good news. Psalm 32. 
I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Our text this morning is going to come from the book of Malachi, chapter 2, or excuse me, the book of Haggai. I was looking at Malachi when I said that. It's going to come from the book of Haggai, chapter 2, the first nine verses of Haggai, chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnants of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, your word is before us, and we ask that you would cause it to act on our hearts as the symbolic, sacrificial knife that it is, sharper than any two-edged sword. We ask that you would cut us up by your word and reform us into a greater picture of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Two weeks ago, we began our study of the book of Haggai. Haggai is a short prophetic book coming in at only two chapters. It's not a big one. And to briefly review what we looked at two weeks ago, we saw how a faithful remnant of God's people were living in Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, These Jews had returned with the exiles to rebuild the temple of God because Cyrus, the king of Persia, was compelled by God to set the Jews about rebuilding the temple. Remember, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of God. God directs it wherever he chooses. So the work began and came under a lot of pressure and then had to cease due to all of the political uh, chaos at the time. Um, And at that time, God's people became complacent with their lives in the land. Now, these were his faithful remnant but they still became complacent with their lives in the land. And God was unhappy with their actions, or rather their inaction, and sent Haggai to speak to Zerubbabel and Joshua, the governor and the high priest. Haggai tells the people that God is unhappy that they've been living in paneled houses while his house lies in ruins. Because of this, God decides to interfere with everything. With everything that these people held as more important than God, God interferes. The harvest was scant and rations were meager. God had dried up the heavens. He'd ceased to send dew onto the fields. 
He had removed their ability to warm themselves or even earn and save their income. In short, he had removed their ability to fulfill the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate is laid out for us in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 28. I'm not going to read it now, but you can look at it later. But in essence, it tells us, tells those of us who've been made in the image of God, that means everybody, everybody with the image of God is supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over God's creation. God's people were doing this. They were farming. They were having children. They were raising livestock. They were building homes. These all fall under the heading of cultural mandate, and they're all good things that they should have been doing. However, God was not happy with them. To leave his house in ruins while theirs were pristine was to invert the very hierarchy God had created. First comes worship, then comes culture, and then comes everything else. Having heard the word of the prophet, their hearts were stirred up. The the faithful remnant, they responded to this. Their hearts were stirred up by the Lord, and God's people repented. And they set about to work on building his house. So that was a review, the review of um, chapter 1. And I was initially going to go through the second chapter all today, all in one week, just as I did with the first chapter. But as I got into the text and studied it in a little bit more detail it became apparent that the first verse um, of chapter 2 was going to take a fair amount of exegetical spade work. It might seem odd when we reread the verse. The verse is, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. What's so hard to understand about that? Why do we need to spend a bunch of time on that, you might ask yourself. Well, this verse, and more specifically, this date, is loaded with context. And it's loaded with meaning that the Jews would have taken for granted. They would have known exactly what was going on at the time. We, at least I didn't at the time. Maybe you guys already know. The reason why this date is so important is that this date to the Jews would be like saying December 25th to us, to us Christians. Our minds immediately set in on the context of Christmas. We put ourselves in what we know to be Christmas and how we, how we celebrate Christmas. And everything comes out of that context. Well, the 21st day of the seventh month is the time of the calendar when the Jews were completing one of their three most important feasts. The feasts of uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also called the Feast of Booths. So tabernacles and booths, those are the same thing. Um, They're sometimes used interchangeably. So if you don't know, there are three major Jewish feasts. Passover, which was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Pentecost, which was also called the Feast of Weeks, and then the Feast of Booths. And um, uh, yeah, so Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes they're used interchangeably, but they mean the same thing. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, uh, get them out and let's get ready to go on a little Old Testament expedition to learn a little bit more about the Feast of Booths and why understanding it is important to get our minds in the same context God's people would have had when the word of the Lord came to Haggai. So, first spot we're going to go to is Leviticus, the book of Leviticus. We're going to turn to chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23, and we're going to be looking um, at the verses between 33 and 44. I'm not going to read them all, but we're going to be looking at that. So, Leviticus chapter 23, starting with verse 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, 
and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. Okay, let's stop there. And let's point out something. The Feast of Booths connects up with Sabbath rest in a big way. The Feast of Booths is going to connect with Sabbath rest, which is going to connect with the house of God and the house of man. These are going to be themes, especially that we see in Haggai. For example, this festival begins in the Sabbath month, the seventh month. It goes from one Sabbath, the 15th, to the next Sabbath, the 22nd. It's an eight-day celebration which begins and ends on the Sabbath of God. We are told that ordinary work should not be done during the first and eighth day of this festival. So if we get back to the text and we skip down to verse 40, skip down to verse 40 and listen to this, listen to this part. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Okay, so earlier I just said it was an eight-day celebration. The text here says it's a seven-day celebration. It's because that eighth day is a, uh, it has another, I actually don't remember the name of it, but there's another name for that holy convocation that comes at the end of the Feast of Booths. And so um, it is a, it is an eight, there's eight days from Sabbath to Sabbath, but the time that they're actually camping out in booths is seven days because the eighth day is like, pack up the tents, we're going home. So the Jews were told to build themselves booths or tabernacles um, or to put in our own language tents. And they were supposed to cover the tops of the booths with the boughs of beautiful leafy trees. Everyone native to Israel was supposed to do this faithfully. They were supposed to do this faithfully. Now, remember that word. They were supposed to do this faithfully. Um, turn with me to Deuteronomy 16. We're going to get a little bit different perspective, perspective and a few more additional details to the Feast of Booths. Deuteronomy 16, starting with verse 1. You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days. And when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press, you shall rejoice in your feast. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord, your God, at the place that the Lord will choose. Because the Lord, your God, will bless you in all your produce and in all the works of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. So this passage, Deuteronomy 16, highlights the fact that the misery the Jews were experiencing in chapter 1 of Haggai was, at least in part, because they were not keeping the feast unto the Lord, this particular feast. Think about this. These people were miserable because they wouldn't throw a party and have a week-long barbecue campout. Give me, give me one other religion where God commands his followers to rest and feast. It doesn't happen. The false religions of this world cause, tell, tell, the, tell their 
uh, people to work and bring sacrifices and do all kinds of things. But our God says, have a week-long camp out and, and barbecue a bunch of stuff. If you want to see the insanity of sin, just look at how our people's unwillingness to rest and feast. These people, the Jews, in Haggai 1, were miserable and without joy. Their harvest and their produce were not being blessed. And in fact, none of the work of their hands was being blessed because they had refused to listen to and obey the voice of God as revealed through his law. Now, how do I know that? Well, the book of Ezra. I know we're flipping around a bunch, but if you go in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 13 through 18. So we're going to go to Ezra chapter 8, starting with verse 13. Ezra chapter 8. On the second day, the heads of, the fa- of fathers' houses of all the peoples with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to steady the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of the Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law. They kept the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So, the people, <clears throat> so whether the people were still celebrating this feast when Haggai was prophesying, it seems a little hard to know, but it seems unlikely to me. But the text does say that when Ezra and Nehemiah, a few years earlier, about, about 17 years earlier, when they were working on the law, they were reading through the book of the law, and they found like, hey, we were supposed to be celebrating the Feast of Booths. We had no idea. We've never, been do- we've never done it. And in fact, they had never done it since Joshua, the son of Nun. They had not been doing this for a long time. So the text doesn't say if the, the revival that happened under Ezra was a short-lived revival and then the Jews kind of fell back by the wayside. But we do know that the Jews hadn't been celebrating since the time of Joshua. And that God, and we do know that in the time of Haggai, God was not blessing them in their produce and in all the work of their hands so that they will be altogether joyful. That's what Deuteronomy 16 says God will do. He says, if you do this, I will bless you in your produce. I will bless you in the work of your hands. This is happening at harvest time. You're coming with all of your harvest. And so if you're not planning on doing it, if you haven't been doing it, God is not going to be blessing your harvest just like he wasn't blessing the harvest of the time of Haggai. Um, in fact, if you look back at Haggai chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, uh, you don't have to turn there, but you, it says in Haggai chapter 1, it says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. And then in verse 10, uh, God says, The heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So this Feast of Booths is kind of a big deal because God is not blessing them. And in the context, of course, of chapter 1 is that they haven't built his house. But if you're not building his house for worship, 
You're obviously not worshiping God in the way he's asking to be worshiped. So the Jews should have been celebrating the Feast of Booths by essentially having, in our context, would have been a family camp conference. Um, Picking up on that idea, for one week a year, the Jews are supposed to camp out in a little mini tent, which is supposed to remind them of God's tent. And, And while they're camping out, each day they spend their time reading from the law and offering sacrifices. This is very, this is like strikingly similar to our own style of family camp that we, we often have in our Christian communities. We'll go, we'll go away from our regular day-to-day lives, um, and that we do that so that we can more closely focus on God and on His Word, and, and spend special time worshiping Him and feasting together with His people. For us, of course, the Feast of Booths is, is not a mandatory celebration. We don't have to follow that. That's, uh, that was fulfilled in Christ, and, and we no longer need to, to, to follow that. But the New Testament makes... Um, but the idea of spending a week camping out with the express purpose of growing closer to God and feasting is an idea that we probably all resonate with, even though most of us, myself included, have never connected it with the Feast of Booths. Some ideas are so good, they're woven into the fabric of the created world. Can't pronounce one of those things. All right, one last idea to explore um, about the Feast of Booths before we tackle the first nine verses of Haggai 2. I haven't forgot about Haggai. We're going to get there. So during this feast, there were many different sacrifices that took place, but one in particular that I would like to highlight. Um, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to Numbers chapter 29. We're going to start with verse 12, Numbers chapter 29. Numbers chapter 29, starting with verse 12, says, On the 15th day of the seventh month, you're starting to get get the the pattern for for this day, 15th day of of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall keep a feast to the Lord seven days. Now, as we go through all the way through 30, verse 32, verses 13 through 32, it talks about all the things that need to be sacrificed during this time, for the sake of t- during, during the feast. For the sake of time, we're not going to read through all of those, but fo- let's just focus on one, the burnt offerings of bulls. So on day one, 13 bulls are sacrificed. Day two, 12 bulls. Day three, 11 bulls, and so on until we get to day seven, where seven bulls are sacrificed. This means that by the end of the seventh day of the feast, the Jews would have sacrificed a total of 70 bulls. That number 70 is intentional. It's not randomly there. It means something. 70 is used all throughout the Old Testament, and I believe that in this context, 70 is connected with the nations of the world. In Genesis 10, we don't have to go there now, but in Genesis 10, we read about all the nations that filled the earth following the flood all the nations that came from Noah, from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And there are 70 listed. There are 70 nations there. These nations, these 70 nations, could only approach God through his chosen people. There wasn't a second way of getting to God. Just like now, Jesus is the only way to God. In uh, in the Old Testament, Jesus was still the only way to God through his covenant people. So think, if you will, of Naaman, the commander of the army of Syria, when he was brought low by leprosy in 2 Kings chapter 5, it was to, where did he go? Where did he go so that he could get cured by this? It was to Israel. He found both healing for his skin and his heart. And since God had chosen to reveal himself to Israel and not to other nations, 
Israel's role was to minister and to serve the 70 nations of the world. They were to be a city set on a hill. That's what Jerusalem was supposed to be, a city set on a hill, a light that is not set under a bushel. So the burnt offerings of bulls that comprised the seven days of the Feast of Booths were offered by Israel on behalf of the sins of the 70 nations. At least in a symbolic way, Israel was offering these sacrifices to cover their sin until the good and better sacrifice would arrive. In essence, Israel was keeping the world going until, um, until the, that good and better sacrifice, Jesus, would arrive. Um, the Jews had been given this tremendous covenant privilege, and they were supposed to use that privilege to worship God and serve the nations of the world. They, of course, rarely did this, which is why Jesus spent most of his time on earth fighting with the Jews. During the time of Haggai, the Jews were certainly not doing this. They were not celebrating the Feast of Booths. They were not rebuilding the temple of the Lord. And if you're wondering why I've spent so much time on the background to the Feast of Booths, it's because when the Bible gives us a specific date, we should wonder why. In this case, the answer is obvious. It's obviously connected with the Feast of Booths. But it's not always clear, and we might not always figure out why a date is used, but we should always try and understand everything that the Holy Spirit is saying to us through the revealed will, Word of God. Those things are not there randomly. So, let's get, to, let's get back to Haggai. So, book, uh, book of Haggai, chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 1 of chapter 2. So, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the Word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. So we've established already that this date is significant, and it's the final day of the Feast of Booths. The next day, the eighth day, is going to be the Holy Convocation, but the the, the last day of the Feast of Booths is this day. Now, whether the Jews were celebrating or not is not immediately clear, but it's probably, uh, I think it's very likely that they were not. So if they were, um, so, um, yeah. So just as this glorious week, weekend-long camping trip is coming to an end, the word of the Lord has come to the people by way of his prophet Haggai. And then he says this, verse 2, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say this. And then he's going to say in verse 3, but stopping on verse 2, even though there seems to be a lot of names going on there, remember, there's only three people. There's Zerubbabel, Joshua, and Haggai. God's prophet, um, so we got prophet, priest, and king. God's prophet is Haggai, Zerubbabel is the king, or he's the governor, and Joshua is the high priest. So prophet, priest, and king have all come together. Church and state have convened the faithful remnant of the people and gathered to hear the word spoken. Verse 3 says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Haggai asks them, If there's anyone left who can remember what the temple looked like before the Babylonians destroyed it, he's heard the stories. Haggai knows that what they are standing before now is nothing compared to the grandeur of what that temple was like in its prime. All that is before them now is half of the wall that was completed in Nehemiah's day, half a wall and a foundation for the temple and nothing else. So seeing their discouragement, he asks for a show of hands. Who here remembers how good it used to be? You see how far short this temple falls of the last one? If they'd ever read Ezekiel, then they would know the rebuilt temple was going to be huge, as big as a mountain. And yet this foundation seemed so small and puny. So he says, 
Who here knows, who here remembers the good old days? You remember how good it was? You see what we've got right now? It's nothing compared to that one, right? Verse 4, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people in the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. In spite of what you see with your own eyes, be strong and work. That is, that is basically ex- what God is telling them. He says, despite what you see with your own eyes, be strong and work. Despite the chaos or the desolation or the discouragement around you, despite what you know or think you know to be true, despite all of this, work. Be strong and work. How can we? There's so much to do. There are so many scary things out there in the world right now. Our rulers have gone mad with power. They're drunk on tyranny. How am I supposed to work, be strong and work? That might be a good question to ask God. And he has the answer right there. The word is Emmanuel, God with us. Work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. The God of armies is with us. Therefore, we can be courageous. We can be strong and we can work. Verse 5 says, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Now, this is interesting. What covenant did God make with, his pe- with the people when they came out of Egypt? And in what way is his spirit remaining in their midst? It says, according to the covenant, my spirit remains in your midst. Okay, what does that mean? How are the promise and the spirit connected? To answer that question, we need to turn back in our Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 25. Exodus, chapter 25, if you've got your Bibles with you. So, starting in Exodus 25, we get several chapters describing how to make the sanctuary of God. Tells us how to make the table, tells us how to make the lampstand, the tabernacle, just all kinds of descriptions, like several, several, several chapters of descriptions on how to make all this stuff. Um, so the first, uh, first nine verses of chapter, or the first verse of chapter 25 says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you receive from them, gold and silver. And then he describes a bunch of other precious items. So skip down to verse nine and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So then after that, we hear about how to make all the different pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. We hear about the clothing the priest should be wearing and the altar. Basically, every one of the details of how it should be made, God tells us. There's just one problem. It's one thing to describe something. It's another thing to build it. It's one thing to build a castle in the sky. It's another thing to build a castle on the ground. Someone had to have the skill to actually make all these things. Was there anyone to be found in Israel who could do this, this thing that God had described? So we were in Exodus 25. Flip forward to chapter 31 of Exodus. Chapter 31, starting with verse 1, says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you. 
So the first time Israel was supposed to build the tabernacle, God sent his spirit amongst the craftsmen to give them the ability to make what God had commanded. He promised to give the ability, the intelligence, and the knowledge to craft, devise, work, cut, carve, and make all that he had commanded. God was telling Haggai, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant of all the faithful that his spirit would be with them to do the work that he had commanded. In other words, I've told you all to do this, and now I'm going to provide for you. The covenant he had made with them can be seen in Exodus chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but listen to the promise God gives to Moses. God is talking to Moses. He says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on the mountain. So the promise or the covenant is that God will be with us and that he will send his spirit amongst us to give us the skill and the spirit to work. He's given us the commands. We don't have to worry about the skill. He'll send that. Verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry lands. So in this particular passage, or in verse 6, I found um, that other people were telling me this, of course. I don't speak Hebrew. Uh, I found in my study that a more literal but not as smooth translation would go something like this. Quote, It is not yet only a little while, and I will be shaking the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. So so verse 6 seems to indicate that it's a one time, I will shake this once. But the actual Hebrew indicates a perpetual shaking. Um, The translation indicates that there will be a one great shaking, but in Hebrew it comes across as there will be a continual shaking. In the New Testament, this shaking is seen in the present sense, and so we should take it in the present sense in the Old Testament as well. This shaking took place when Christ came to earth. Everything began to shake loose when Christ came. He came to raise up the valleys, to flatten the mountains, and break the chains of the captives. Verse 7 in Haggai says, And I will shake all nations. I will be shaking all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So as the shaking begins in earnest, he says it's going to happen in a little while. We believe that that shaking began about 400 years after he said this, when Jesus came. That was when the shaking began. As the shaking began in earnest and the people are promised that the treasure of all the nations will come in and fill the house with glory. That's a glorious promise. And, there, and, there, and you see this theme throughout the, throughout the Bible um, that the ungodly nations, they build up wealth simply so it can be given to God's people. So we don't have to worry about our daily bread because the ungodly nations are building up wealth so that it can be given to us. Think about this, and don't, don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 6, in verse 10 we read, The Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So the same can be applied here. They have the treasure, and they have plenty of it. The world has the treasure and plenty of it. 
God's people are small and outnumbered in Haggai's time. And yet it will be the work of the continual shaking of God that will one day shake the nations in such a way that the house is filled with glory unlike any it had ever seen before. Verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. So this treasure belongs to God. It's just on loan to all of us. This includes the godly and the ungodly. Our treasure does not belong to us. If we use it to further the kingdom, then all glory be to God. If we choose not to, then God will take it and use it to further the kingdom. All glory be to God. The Lord of hosts, the God of armies, wants us to remember that everything we have is something that has been given. And to take care lest we forget that it was the Lord who gave it to us. Finally, verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. We looked a little bit about that uh, two weeks ago, this repeated phrase, Lord of hosts, God of armies. Israel is small and outnumbered, and they need to be reminded constantly that not only is God with them, but that he is a God of armies. He will protect them. But remember, Haggai asks for a show of hands. He says, how many of you guys remember what this house used to look like? Well, verse 9 says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. So all of you guys who remember how good it used to be and how puny it looks right now, well, just wait, because the glory that's coming is going to be greater than the former. Um, And so in this final verse, um, it's true, we see it's true that the physical structure that these um, that our people were building at that time will fall. It was destroyed in 70 AD. Uh, this house of God did not survive very long. It's, I mean, it survived a long time by our standards, over 500 years, but it didn't survive forever because it was a physical building. And while it's true that their physical structure will one day fall, the, it's true that the physical structures we build will one day fall, um, and it's also true that the flimsy structures that make up our tents or our booths, will certainly one day fall. The temple of God will be filled with the nation's wealth. And there, and only there, will you find peace because God has given it. So everything else we build, everything else we put our hands to, is flimsy and shaky and will be shaken. But God, um, God's temple, God's house, will not. That's where you will find peace. This temple, this kingdom, will never be shaken because it has been founded upon the chief cornerstone, Christ himself. It will be filled with the wealth of all the nations. Those people that make up the 70 nations of the world will come into and fill this temple in the name of Christ and will make the temple more glorious than anything that could have ever been built with human hands. As we close, uh, I'd like you to turn with, you, turn with me in your Bibles to the New Testament to Hebrews uh, chapter 12, we're going to start with verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have, been, that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
Our God sets the rules and we don't. He is the one doing the shaking, so let us cling to the temple which cannot be shaken. This glorious new temple is surrounding you right now. Each one of you, look around right now, each one of you sealed in Christ, make up a living stone within this temple and it will never be shaken. Everything else will be shaken, but we will remain. We will remain because we will remain in Christ. The world around us will fall apart as it is shaken to pieces. But that's why we're here, to minister to a world broken by the shaking of God. We are now the new Israel. We are the city set on, hill, on a hill. We are the light to the perishing. We have been given the we have been given or rather we have been given the mission or rather the commission of ministering to the nations and baptizing them in the name of our triune God. We are here to serve God and point the pagan world toward him. As the world flees, we stay. As the world panics, we remain steadfast. As the world crumbles and the idols for destruction are stripped away, we will remain to worship God love one another, and extend his kingdom until it has conquered every last stronghold. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you have given us citizenship in an unshakable house of glory. May we redeem the time you have given us here on earth to build your house and devote ourselves to furthering your kingdom, both here in Lewis County and within the spheres of influence that you have set before us. We ask you this in the good and strong name of Jesus. Amen. We have now come to the part in our um, order of service where God feeds us. <clears throat> he feeds us Jesus, and he has called us. We've confessed our sins. He has forgiven us. He has consecrated us. And now we come to the table of the, of the Lord, which is a visible sacrament that shows that we serve a king <clears throat> who provides for our every need. Just as our forefathers were given the spirit to work and the skill to accomplish in building the house of God by their father, so now that same father is giving us his same children of the covenant, Jesus, to nourish and build up our faith in him. We need Jesus, and our father has provided. Kids, kids all listening, this is for you guys. Kids, when you take the bread... Remember that you didn't earn your seat at the table. Jesus bought that seat for you with his blood. Be thankful to him for, that, for the seat at the table. Parents, don't doubt your child's place in Christ's kingdom. When Jesus rebuked his disciples, he was rebuking them for not allowing children, even infants, to come unto him and told, him that, told them that only those who receive the kingdom as a little child has a place in it. The bread is the body of Christ. Paul also tells us that we are the body, are the bread, or the body of Christ. He says, For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Since those of us claimed and sealed by Christ share in this covenant promise, each of us, as members of the same loaf of bread, should eat that bread and drink the wine in faith because God has already accepted our works. So for those of you who have been baptized and are not under discipline of your local church, come and welcome to Jesus. The charge is this. You have been worshiping with Christ in the heavenlies. You've been worshiping in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
It has been glorious, and we might be tempted to be like Peter and want to build a tabernacle and never come down from the mountain of the Lord. However, we must go. We must go back out into the world and see how God can use us to rebuild and reform what has been destroyed, knocked loose, and broken by his shaking. Don't be dismayed to see the shaking. Don't be dismayed to see the destruction, but instead ask God, how will you use me today to rebuild your glorious house that the nations might be glad? Here's the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.